With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Whenever the news turns to criminal justice, social justice, and reform, I turn to Nicole Gonzalez-Van Cleve. She is a professor of sociology at Brown University. She's written two books about race, the law, and criminal justice. And she is just really gifted at breaking down complex systems and concepts in a way that always keeps the focus on the people who are most impacted. We talk about what it will take to reform the justice system, biases in our own communities, and the very personal ties that for Nicole make this work much more than theoretical. One of the reasons that you and I have spent so much time talking in the past few weeks and months is because the issue that you study has been front and center in our national discourse. While police reform is not actually the thing that you study, I would say, tangential to the thing you study. I wonder what you think police reform and policing can tell us about the broader criminal justice system. Studying policing actually was somewhat accidental to the larger project that I was exploring, which is, as a young person, I walked into the criminal courthouse in Chicago. It's the largest unified court system in America. And I became embedded with the prosecutor's the public defenders, the judges, and really began a decade-long study of this space, really focused on the lawyers. I didn't really have any intention to think about policing until I realized that the police were everywhere in the court system. They controlled and somewhat intimidated judges who stood up against them. The prosecutors talked in these kind of clandestine ways about be careful around the police. If they harassed you, you know, as a, a young woman in the in the prosecutor's office, you know, if they got too close, they harassed you, called you too many times, make sure you put up big barriers and send them lots of signals, but be very kind about it. So there was like this undercurrent of fear that these 
seemingly powerful attorneys had (laughs) of police officers that are supposed to, in some ways, be the partners of prosecutors. And so on a very personal level, I began to question, what is it about policing that gives them so much power, not just of what we see in the public, but that they were able to control multiple institutions, namely the prosecutors, as well as even judges. That led me to really say, you know, this is something much bigger than one institution. And for reform to happen, we have to first acknowledge that policing in America extends so far, right? It even extends, I would say, into the jails, because in some cases, if they want to intimidate witnesses, they will arrest them at the scene and use the jail as a coercive tactic to terrify people or just terrify witnesses. That was kind of my entry point is to understand how did they get so powerful to control so much of the criminal justice system as we see it? And then if you kind of scale back even farther, you realize that they have so much influence, even how prosecutors lobby for new laws that vastly expand police power. So they are working alongside prosecutors to create a more punitive social world where more facets of our everyday lives are criminalized. At first, I would think, well, this is about mass incarceration. The more you can criminalize a broken tail light, give people fines and fees, arrest them for not paying child support, but then also not employ them because they've had a criminal charge, the more you expand the web of mass incarceration. But I think it's going deeper because at this point, we realize that almost every interaction with police could possibly end as a deadly encounter. So these new laws that police have been so instrumental about alongside prosecutors that criminalize people, especially poor people of color, become the reason why these encounters begin. Loose cigarettes, a counterfeit $20 bill, right? A traffic stop. Tiny little crimes that most reasonable Americans don't think involves the death penalty. So, of course, the question growing out of that is, how did they become so powerful? That's such a big question. I mean, when we think about the story of mass incarceration, it was a bipartisan effort. Elizabeth Hinton is a scholar, a historian that talked about even when we think about the Democrats, they had a role in this. And I think we heard that in the election where Biden was having to kind of account for the fact that he was part of that super predator myth that said, you know, these kids, which was code for mostly black kids, mostly black and brown kids, these kids are different. They're monster-like. They can't be reformed. And so there was this political momentum and will around incarcerating more people. And certainly I think that's an undercurrent of racism, the legacy of racism, seeing Black children or Latino children as different from white children is not being able to be reformed. That's one piece of it. And so the important part of that political gain that so many politicians got There's funding associated with policing and there's funding and political wins associated with that for prosecutors. And so I think it was seen as career suicide to say, I'm going to scale back on arrests as a general wisdom. It was advantageous to people, elected officials to say, I'm going to be tough on crime. And what that meant was largely arresting black and brown people in urban communities. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. 
There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight, and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the elephant and Freddy the duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&M's for all fun kind. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. I wonder if there was a person you met or something you saw during those 10 years that shaped your thinking around this or captures for you what it is that you learned and saw in that time? Well, when I was writing the book, Crook County, the book starts and I'm, you know, 22 years old and the book ends and I'm in kind of my mid thirties and I'm reflecting upon all those years. And I think time is really important because that demarcates how many years people are going into the system. It felt like time was an important currency. It was an important currency to the, the judges, because they just give out 12 years or 15 years, like it doesn't matter. And they give out five or eight years to a brand new mother, not realizing that by the time that mother gets out of prison, her baby will be in third grade. I mean, when you think of it like that, that to me felt astounding. And when you thought that the mostly white attorneys did not see the time for people of color as being meaningful, that their lives did not matter, that sitting in the jail for six more months is not a big deal, right? That kind of disregard for human life, that to me made this kind of a calling that I said, you know what, you're going to have to be very patient and sit with this for a long time. So I went in there by myself. But the other thing I did was because so many white people were skeptical of a Latina going into a field site and embedding. And many of them would say, well, you were looking for racism. And so you found it. Or are you a reliable set of eyes? I remember Sotomayor got so much heat when she said, you know, I see the law through the vantage point of a wise Latina. And I remember thinking, gosh, if someone says that about my research, like that's almost like the demise of your career. No, it's TKO. Yeah, because you're not seen as a researcher. And so therefore you can't be impartial. And, you know, it is a double standard because there's, you know, white men that study white people, white attorneys all the time, and they're never questioned. This is like this double burden that I think a lot of researchers of color have to account for. 
And I think this plays out in a lot of fields, but I've watched it play out in journalism. Oh, in journalism too. My solution was that I trained 130 court watchers to go into the field site over two years. And I had them dressed down in plain clothes and almost disguise themselves as regular people. So no one would know that they were watching the courts. And that's when I saw the most abuse. I think, you you know, you would ask for like one impactful, you know, event. We had three court watchers, all white. And they saw a child who was just kind of fiddling on a cell phone. And the guards pointed through this bulletproof glass. They talked to the prosecutor and kind of looked and shook their heads. And they went after this child and they put her in lockup. They literally uh, take the child from their mother and put the child in lockup. And you can hear, according to these three court watchers, the child wailing in the jail, just wailing. And the mother is just, you know, beside herself going, please give me back my baby. And I remember thinking after I read this account, you know, it was sometimes like being gaslit. I was like, I had seen those types of encounters over and over again, but seeing it through fresh eyes of people that had never been in that court system, I realized that I had to make sure that I didn't normalize that level of violence because I had just seen it so much. And to see it played out through the vantage point of three different people seeing the same thing. I can almost imagine, like, imagine a Black mother at the turn of the century and her son's being taken away to be lynched, right? She would beg the sheriff, please give me my child back, please, please, right? I had read historical accounts like that, but what I was seeing in broad daylight in an American court system in a major city was something quite similar being played out. And I call it kind of, extra legal violence, meaning there is no law school that teaches you to do that. These are just practices that become ritualized every day because they're just part of the normal, quote unquote, gallows humor. And to me, it was racial abuse. And so that was my goal. How do you show racial abuse to mostly white people who don't understand or believe it exists? And that was a tall order at the time. Why pursue this through the lens of sociology rather than become a practitioner in the law? And was there any part of you that said, I'm I'm done watching this. I want to be a part of it. So I, you know, I was actually accepted to be in the joint degree program in Northwestern. So I thought about getting a law degree and I guess it would have been somewhat free. Uh, it was like included. It's like a package deal or something. But I turned it down because I felt like we can convince ourselves that this is okay if, you know, there's always a procedure. I mean, we've seen it in policing. They say, well, is this what a reasonable officer would do? And I think that's not the question. Is this what a reasonable American would do? Would a reasonable American kneel on someone's neck for nine minutes and then look flagrantly into the camera and as people beg them? No. And what I realized is so many attorneys were normalizing these practices as though they weren't abuse. James Baldwin said, you know, I became a witness. I became an observer. And to me, the most important thing was to chronicle in an overwhelmingly convincing way that this type of abuse was happening in American courts in Chicago, just one of the largest systems in America, but also all over the nation. And that became enormously important from an academic standpoint. But then I also felt a commitment to sharing it publicly Looking back, what is it about your own life that led you to that courtroom? Walking in there, I think I was always fascinated by victimization. And, you know, I had a very tough childhood and was separated from my family. And to me, that was a type of devastation. 
And I think there was something really empowering by thinking that I was going to be a prosecutor. Like I was like, I'm going to advocate for victims. And there was part of that story was true. I just didn't realize that the victims were sometimes the defendants. And sometimes the victims themselves were not being advocated by the prosecutors that had sworn that they would. And so I think there was something about that. I think the way to sometimes heal from our own personal traumas is to have your story told and retold and heard. But the other very personal thing is that while I was finishing this story, my family, my paternal family, told me a very, you know, painful secret. And, you know, it wasn't a totally a secret, but it was news to me, which was my first cousin was incarcerated in the same system I was studying. So here I am as an undergraduate. I'm entering the system as a researcher. And then I get this tragic news that my cousin has been charged with attempted murder. He is incarcerated in 1988 and is not freed until I'm finishing my PhD, I think about 2009. And so here you have two cousins that have equal potential in life. And I think that personal connection and that collision with your professional life made it feel that this is personal on so many levels and that it's also meaningful. And that I always had felt like the lineup of both defendants as well as victims could have been my neighbor's family's friends. It could have been your cousin and your aunt or your uncle. And then it became true because it's also touched my life. I just try to use that as, you know, a connection between all the people impacted. My second book called The Waiting Room I did with the Marshall Project. I was literally outside the Cook County Jail doing field work. And I get a text from another cousin saying that my cousin was incarcerated again. You know, again, mental illness and addiction that often comes with mental illness. It, it creates these patterns that you just cannot get out. And so here I am standing on one side of the Cook County Jail and my cousin is on the other side and I can't go in the jail to visit him. They have a list that exposes any person. You go through a background check and they match the name and the person. And so this would, there'd be enormous amount of worry about retaliation, about speaking out against the police, speaking out against the sheriffs. If they can match my name to my cousins, would that be a danger to him? Again, like this is the type of violence that extends through families and has like a cascading effect, a ripple effect that even someone who is now has a PhD and now can advocate and do all these great things that are somewhat empowering that you still are subjected to that very same system because it's just so vast. You moved very quickly through that early (laughs) part of your life. And I wonder if that is because you prefer not to talk about it or if you want to share a little bit of, of that context. Yeah, I think growing up, I did not grow up with my biological father and, you know, it was a really tough divorce between my parents. Not being with them, not being with the Gonzalez side was such an impactful kind of tragedy. And so I was kind of, to them, I was like a missing daughter for so many years. They used to put little ads in the Sun-Times and the Tribune, and it would say, happy birthday to our baby, Nicole Gonzalez, you are five. Happy birthday, you know to our baby, Nicole Gonzalez, you are 10. Seeing that as an adult and now, you know, as a parent, I think of the tragedy of that. And so it's been lots of years kind of healing, but then also lots of purposeful years feeling that all those years being away from them, I thought at first they were lost years. However, the time that we've made up in my adulthood, I mean, I have so many cousins that I didn't get to grow up with, but have been my family. And some of them are young enough to have a fresh new start. So some of them were so young that when they saw me 
in my very, you know, 21, they're like, that's cousin Nicole, cuz Cole. You know, they never knew that I was missing. And so there was this kind of hope that it was a wonderful way to be a part of the Gonzalez family. And so now there's so much that I do that I just try to make them proud because I think when you lose so many years together due to family conflict or that that happens to so many families, it's so healing to have that time just to truly value it. And what's been wonderful is just having my father and my aunts just be a part of this part of my life and career because it feels very purposeful. After them sharing with me some of the tragedy of what I had missed, namely my cousin's incarceration and how that impacted my aunts and my father and my cousins, man, this felt like a healing, a way of righting a wrong, you know? So I take them along the way all the time. I feel like we're always texting. A couple of times I brought my <laughs> brought my father to like the PBS studios in Chicago. And I hope it's purposeful. It's healing, but it does take a long time. There was a headline that I saw and it caught my attention and I wanted to bring it to you to see what it raised for you. It's from the LA Times and posits this question, what will make people care about the police shootings of Latinos? Did you see that piece? I have not seen that piece, but I've probably asked that question in my own head. (laughs) I've asked that question in my own head. I think this is such a complex question because there could be so many answers. And this has been a really tough week. This is my research, but you cannot research this without feeling it too. I think there is a moment where I do like these media blitzes because there's been so many police shootings. And I think the week after I just, there's probably one day that I'm just like, oh my gosh, you just have to stop and cry or like yell into a forest or something or a pillow. It's just, that can't, I think happened to me when I heard about the death of Adam Toledo, who was in Chicago. And, you know, I'm on all these websites, Facebook, I'm on like a Little Village website, which is the Latino community, the Mexico of the Midwest, (laughs) as they call it. It's right near the Cook County Jail, which I study. So I spent a lot of time. I have great pictures of my aunts and my father around in the area growing up. So, you know, it's got a very personal connection. And to think that the police shot a 13-year-old and then they seem to have lied about it in what has become a very predictable pattern. The beginning of that, a lot of the Latino community was yelling at the parents and they were blaming the parents. How could you let your kids wander the streets? How could this happen? There was a lot of vilifying the victim. And I think that was really painful because I guess I, in my vantage point, I just don't believe that anybody, no matter how quote unquote bad they are, deserves to die in that fashion. And what we've seen is that when there's mass shooters that are white, they are taken, they're fed. They're put bulletproof vests on so that they're taken alive and in custody. We know police can do this, but they don't seem to do it for us. So, and even if you're a child that's complying. And so I think there was this interesting push, which is at first people were vilifying his family and vilifying the child. And then they pushed to saying, oh my gosh, the police made this up. But then there was still a faction of people saying, but he shouldn't have been out. This wouldn't have happened to him. It reminded me a lot of when sexual assault victims, well, why were you out there walking at that hour? And why were you wearing that skirt? And why were you, right? There's always a questioning of the victim. And so kind of what will it take? And I think, you know, are we asking these questions because it makes ourselves feel like it couldn't happen to our children or our families? I wonder, because it's much easier to say, well, you're to blame for that and there's something we could do to prevent it than to accept the fact that Adam was shot because he was in a Latino neighborhood that police deem 
dangerous and he is Latino. Therefore, him surrendering was not enough to be unseen through that lens that he was seen as dangerous and therefore he had to be killed within seconds. That's really hard to accept if you love your community, if you love your children. It's just so terrifying. And so I think, you know, I do feel like we do have a hurdle here. And I wonder too, if there is a, you know, we don't talk about this enough, but there is this undercurrent of anti-Blackness that is in Mexican communities, Latino communities. I heard stories from my aunts about my birth and, you know, how dark is she? Does she look like this person? Does she look like that person? I think a lot of our families, we won't want to admit it, but a lot of people did that, right? What's the baby look like and how dark are they? This is the legacy of kind of anti-Black racism that has seeped into our communities. And because of that, a lot of Latinos don't want to accept their adjacency to this type of racism. We want to think that we have these protections and we don't. And I really just caution us to think about it. Why are we making these arguments? That, that to me is the larger issue, is that we don't want to accept that we do have this proximity to Blackness and it is okay. And it is a problem of white violence <laughs> and not Black inferiority or Mexican or Latino inferiority. The lens needs to be shifted to the criminality and that is on the white institutions that have protected this violence against people of color. As someone who has such proximity to the problem, what do you envision as the solution? When I was, it was probably 2015, and that was the shooting death of Laquan McDonald in Chicago and the cover-up by the Chicago police, the failure to charge by Anita Alvarez, another Latina from Little Village. She was the prosecutor, so I always say we also can create harm in particular ways, and we got to reckon with that. That case came out, and they were just going to fire the chief of police, and that was it. And I had never really said to myself, okay, you're going to do media. And I remember meeting a gentleman named Brian Monroe. He's the former head of the NABJ, and he just passed away this year. And he was at Temple University at the time when I was there. And he said, how, how much do you care about these issues? And I said, gosh, I would, you know, so much. I've mean, spent a decade of my young life doing this so far. And he said, what was your greatest fear? I go, my greatest fear is that people don't care, is that I present them all this data on racial abuse, these real stories of real people, and nobody cares. And he goes, well, then you have to work a full year on making the world care. And I was like, the world? And he's like, I said, making the world care. And when that shooting death happened of Laquan McDonald and the city was treating it like, and the journalist too, was like, story's done here. We got the video. It's okay. The police chief is fired. I was like, no, I know so much about this. I'm going to go after that prosecutor. And I'm going to go after the judges too. <laughs> I, I wrote my first op-ed for NBC News. And within three days, I was on the Rachel Maddow show, kind of breaking the portion of the story about how the prosecutors were connected to this police violence, that they knew about it, the judges too. I remember thinking, man, this is how you change minds. This is how you start to slowly, slowly tell the public that the police can lie, like all witnesses, and the prosecutors are in on it. And that this law and order image of policing and prosecutors is a far-fetched myth. And that if jurors knew that, they would act differently and vote differently. And, you know, I kind of felt like in the Chauvin case, I was like, I feel like they're acting differently and voting differently. This was unheard of. I mean, the Philando Castile case, they said the officer was not guilty. You know, this has taken a long time. I think the hope comes is that we can start to change people's minds 
And I think it's, it's really, really hard work. And I think it's done by a coalition of people. I think it's academics and people doing the research and then it's working in, in, with journalists and then it's arming protesters and activists with data and it's putting political pressure on. That prosecutor, Anita Alvarez, she lost her job. She lost her job. She was voted out by the people. And after her came the first black prosecutor and our first woman, black woman prosecutor. And I think that, you know, that's not cultural change. It's certainly not institutional change, but it shows accountability too. That maybe no longer is it politically advantageous just to be tough on crime and cover up for a police. Maybe we put all prosecutors on call, even the black and brown ones. If you cover up for police violence and you are not brought to task for it, we're going to come for your job. We're going to come for your office. And I think to me that felt very effectual, but it's got to have the political will to kind of back it up. Nicole, what did I miss? For everyone listening that cares about these issues and just feels like their heart is being ripped out, please make sure that you're consuming them with a lot of moderation and make sure that you are not exposing yourself just openly to being inundated with these images. I try to do the best I can to prepare myself mentally before I see a police shooting, uh, a child, a person. I sometimes don't look at the images and I listen to sometimes the audio narration. I guess the fact is, is that I try to be very, very cautious about how I go into these videos of trauma and then also how I exit. And so I leave time to just honor the victim as well. Like for instance, in the moments before like the Rachel Maddow show, I have this like a chain. My aunt, my great aunt gave me this chain of St. Joseph and the hand of God. And so I always, I always wear it. I, you know, I imagine that it's like a protective force. <laughs> so I will hold on to it. And I literally will close my eyes and, and say like the name of the person that passed away. So I will just be like Laquan McDonald. And then I just think like, what would his mom or his aunt or his dad or whomever say like, and then I, I think like, I think you, um, Ayúdame a ayudar, like help me to help. Uh, and I, I do that meditation because I sometimes feel so powerless. I do, I honestly just feel so powerless sometimes. And I think sometimes feeling that um, that process helps me feel a little bit more empowered so I can do this work and then do it another day. Nicole, thank you so much. Thank you. So beautiful. Awesome. I love thank that. you. I love that. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lentico-Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Paulina Velasco is our senior producer. Our lead producer is Cedric Wilson. Kojin Tashiro is our associate sound designer. Manuela Bedoya is our social media editor and ad ops lead. We love hearing from you when you email us at hola at latinatolatina.com, when you slide into our DMs on Instagram, when you tweet at us at Latina to Latina. Remember to subscribe, follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening. And please, I know I ask this all the time, but do leave a review. It is one of the fastest, easiest ways to help us grow.
a little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.